Well, good morning. It is uh, just a privilege to be here. This is amazing. I just uh, got to speak at the 8 o'clock service, and it struck me as I was standing there that I was standing in the place that I had uh, preached my first sermon ever 15 years ago. Um, Denny, I think, I think he was on vacation one weekend and needed somebody, and he asked like 10 people, and finally I was here, and he asked me to preach, and I thought, that was a terrible sermon, and you all were very, very graceful to me then, and um, it is just such a privilege to be back here with the Grace family. Um, it has been about 15 years since I was on staff, but have always been just supremely grateful for how this church leveraged their lives and leveraged their resource, not only for me, but for so many of my friends uh, that are now in ministry working all around the globe. And so thank you for allowing me these moments this morning. Before we start, I wanna open us in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for this family and for this place. I am grateful for these moments that we have with you, that we get the opportunity to just be in a room for a moment and still our hearts and mind and be present in your word. I pray that as we walk through these moments, you would help us to be present enough and open enough to feel the weight of the problem in the world, but also brave enough to take our next right step and to know that hope is found in you. I um, am thankful, especially for folks that may be new here this morning. I hope that they feel that this is a place where they can be home, where they can be safe, where they can explore who you are, where they can ask hard questions, and where they can be a part of a family that loves them really, really well. God, thank you for these moments and for your word and for your son. Amen. No matter how long I've been a believer, I find myself kind of landing in a spot and landing on a question. And it's a really fundamental question that I think a lot of us have asked ourselves. But the question really is, are Jesus and I interested in the same things? It's a really basic question, isn't it? But I kind of keep coming back to that because I know what I'm interested in. I like, you know, the gators, of course. I'm not just pandering. I really love them a lot. I love the gators. Um, I love the work that I get to be a part of. Brienne, my wife, my girls, even Lucy. I think about them all the time. I love that a lot. And we know what Jesus is passionate about. We see the words of the life of Jesus played out in the canon of Scripture. We know what he is interested in. But the question that I'm asking myself is, is what I care about in line with what Jesus cares about? Do Jesus and I share the same passions? Or has my relationship with Christ drifted into sort of a stale negotiated romance, right? Where Jesus has his interests and I have mine and we live under the same roof, but we just don't necessarily talk that much anymore. This is a reality for some of us. It has been a reality for me. Today, I want to explore what may be for some of us some of the more unfamiliar passions of God. Namely, God's passion for the world and God's passion for justice. Let's start with God's passion for the world. God loves the world. I hope you know this. If you don't know this, actually, I want you to, you, you can stop. This is your sermon. God loves the world, and he loves you, and he created you, and he knows every single hair on your head. You can just put that in your back pocket and know that that is true for you this morning. That is your reality. 
But either way, the truth is, is that God does love this entire world with billions of people in, in different, uh, with different cultures and different races and different languages all around the globe, people who are unfamiliar to us, people who we may not fully understand. In all of its chaos and complexity and dizzying disorder, this is the world that God loves very, very much. We know from John 3.16, maybe you've read it, maybe you've seen it in an end zone, right? We know these words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. We know from the Old Testament, if you've ever read the Old Testament, you just see it, you see the flow of Israel being called into being a blessing to the entire world. The bottom line is that God wakes up, theoretically, he never sleeps, but God wakes up passionately preoccupied with the vast love for the people of this earth whom he created and for whom he sent his son. Conversely, if I'm being honest, which I'm going to be honest this entire time, nothing but honesty up here, if I really think about what I'm interested in and what preoccupies me, what do I think of? Well, I've got my little alarms that wake me up. They're, like I said, five and four years old, wake me up somewhere in the 7 to 7.16 range every single morning, right? First thought of the day, what are we doing for work today? What are we having for breakfast? Who's going where? Hopscotch all around the world on our minivan, all of these kinds of things, doctor's appointments, all of that kind of stuff. That is the world that I'm thinking about. Additionally, I pretty much exist in a world of people who look and act and are like me. They're generally my age. We all kind of look the same when we're hanging out at Publix. <laughs> we don't hang out at Publix, but you know, when we're like doing, doing our thing together, where do we hang out? Maybe it is Publix. Anyway, time to have a real soul-searching moment. Anyway, um, these are the things I think about. I think about my immediate family. Um, and this whole world that I live in every single day as the days drift into weeks, into months, into years, it's a world of my interests and passion and preoccupation and energy and effort. This is the world in, of me and mine. Now, Jesus gets this because he gets us. He understands us. He understands who we are. He knows our, that we are prone to wander, right? He understands this about us. But just because he gets it and just because he loves us in spite of ourselves doesn't mean we can't use just a little tiny bit of course correction, which is what I want to talk about this morning. And so on a very fundamental level, I want to give us three kind of statements to have in our heart as we move forward, three principles. The first is that our goal in life is to have a heart that looks more like Christ. That's the first thing. And if that's true, then the second thing that we need to think about is if Christ's heart beats for the world and clearly isn't motivated by self, then, and this is the third thing, then the hope is to have a heart is for our hearts to grow just a little bit more, maybe a lot more, for the world that is outside of these walls. In other words, a little less me and a lot more of the world. And that's what we're thinking about today. But as we embark upon this journey beyond me and mine and into the world that we serve, I think it is, an, it is, it is very helpful for us to take a look at how God or as how people view a lot of the world and how people view God in light of that. Um, I think that for many people, it is hard for people to understand that God loves them. And I think it's so hard for them to understand this because 
it's something that they've just heard. Like, okay, we know that God is good. We hear that God is good. People have told us to be God is good. But there are statistics in our world that make it hard, I think, for people to understand that God really is good. For example, 21,000 children die of starvation every day. 1.5 billion people have absolutely no access to health care. They don't care about Obamacare or rising premiums or what hospital is best. They have no access to health care, period. Millions and millions of children live on the street. And I've got to imagine that for some of those people, it is sometimes hard to believe that God is good. In a world full of so much suffering and hurt, we know this, right? You don't even need me up here to tell you that things are not as they should be, right? We can watch the evening news, turn on CNN at any point. Things are not as they should be in the world. So what is God's plan for making it believable that he is good? Thankfully, that is a question that has an answer within the pages of Scripture. We'll start in Matthew 5. If you have your Bibles, if you can look at it. We're going to be looking at 5, 14 through 16. If not, it's going to be on the screen, and I'll read it to you. Here's Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We've heard this before, haven't we? It's just one of those scriptures that we know. We've sung the song, maybe, right? We understand this. But what I don't want to miss, is there's a key part of this, saying you are the light of the world. You are. Not when you finish school, or when you have less to do, or when your priorities align, or when you retire and you're able to have more free time, when kind of everything else works out, then you're going to go and you're going to finally be the person who God has hoped you'd be. No, God is saying right now, you are present right now, currently, the light of the world. And in a dark world, people are crying out for the light. When we walked into this room this morning, we know what's in here. We know what it's capable of. We can hear the voices of years and years of singing and speaking echoing in these rooms. But when we walk in and it's dark, what are we looking for? Light. We need something to illuminate this place and make it what it should be. And in the darkness of the world, God is calling us to be light. We are the plan. And we are God's plan A for bringing light into very dark corners of the world. The Apostle Paul says one of the most beautiful things. He says a lot of beautiful things. But he says this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. What an incredible invitation this is. For thousands of years, Christians have been making it believable that he is good by going into the dark places and being the light and love of Christ. And so have, if people have never heard the gospel, we tell them. If they are hungry, we feed them. If they are sick, we give them aid. If they do not have a home, we give them shelter. And in doing so, we are making it believable. We are making it known that God is good because we, us in this room, we are plan A. And we're the only plan. But there's another category of people that are suffering in the world, and they aren't necessarily suffering because they haven't heard the gospel or they don't have food or they don't have shelter or medicine, though these things may be true. The category of people that I want to talk about this morning are the people that are suffering injustice. Now, what is injustice? This is a loaded word, especially in American context. We hear the word justice and injustice a lot, and I feel like sometimes as Americans... We are taught or made to feel as though there is a sense of um, injustice happening all the time. Common example that I will share with you, 
uh, uh, Publix. Or again, we're at Publix. Why not? We'll just spend the morning at Publix together. Uh, so at Publix, right? The, the 15 items or less checkout line, and you get in that line, you got one kid who's just barely holding it together, and you just needed four things that you should have gotten at the run yesterday, but you totally forgot, and so you got your four things, you're going to the checkout line, right, and you just expect, expect to breeze through, and the person in front of you has conservatively 10,000 things in their cart, right? <laughs> Right? And even if you clump it together and all the cereals are one and the sodas are one, we're still like 100 things, right? And so what happens? It's not like we just sit there and go, well, praise be to God. They can just go through and hope they have a great day. No, there's this thing that wells up inside of us, right? This little burning inside of us, this little thing that says this is unjust. Maybe it is. But that's not the biblical definition of injustice. Injustice, as it's defined in the Bible, is a very specific kind of sin. Justice, as it's defined in the Bible, is someone who has taking that which God has given them, given someone else from someone else, right? The story of David and Bathsheba is the easiest way to think of it, right? David, even though that story was redeemed, he had power and he took that which was not his. And justice is taking the life and the liberty and the good things that God has given someone else. It is taking that from them. Ecclesiastes 4.1 gives the essence and the aroma of what injustice is. I'll read it to you. Then I looked again at the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold... I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. Psalm 10, verses 8 and 9, listen. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch the, the unfortunate. He lurks in the hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. That's injustice. But I know what you might be thinking, because I've thought this before. Isn't this a little melodramatic? Like, isn't this like Bible times injustice? Like, this isn't really what injustice looks at, just a lion lurking into... Now, that doesn't happen today. That's why I'm here, to tell you that it does. Um, in our world every single day, this kind of injustice is reality. I know this because I'm a part of International Justice Mission. At IJM, we are a group of a little over 700, almost 800 now, uh, Christian lawyers, criminal investigators, trauma social workers, pastors, graphic designers, every, basically every single job you can think of. And what we do is we go into the world of the poor all around the globe. IJM works currently in 20 communities throughout Africa, Latin America, South and Southeast Asia. And we seek to intervene in cases of violent oppression or injustice in our world. There are over 45 million slaves in the world today. Actual slaves, human beings. That's more time than at any point in human history. This is the situation we find ourselves in. But facts and figures about what IJM is, is and how many people there are really just doesn't hit home. And so I wanna share with you uh, a story of two people, uh, Joseph and Griselda. First, I'm going to share with you Joseph's story. I think this will serve to give a really good understanding of what injustice is in our world. Joseph, alarmed by a noise, Joseph is uh, standing in the little shop that he owns. He hears a noise outside. He walks into the doorway. He sees that there's a riot happening out front. Police, in order to discharge the riot, shoot their guns into the air. The people disperse. 
Joseph is hit by a stray bullet. Joseph is then rushed to the emergency room, and soon, out of what could only be described as the worst luck ever, one of the police, who was a part of the riot, is put in the bed next to Joseph. He was also injured. Joseph is sitting there recovering from a stray bullet. The police officer is laying there, and when the police officer kind of figures out what's happening, he realizes that he doesn't have his gun. Now, for any police officer, not having his or her gun is a very big deal. Uh, however, where uh, Joseph lives in Kenya, um, this is a punishable offense, and the police officer panics. The police officer looks over at Joseph and says, oh, that guy, that guy stole my gun. This is not uncommon at all in Joseph's community. We didn't pick this story out because it was just so fantastic that of course everybody's just gonna be compelled. No, this is like really, really common. In cases where police are under pressure to solve a crime, overcrowded slums become the scene of sweeping arrests. And so before Joseph knew it, he was thrown in jail and he was charged with the exact crime was robbery with violence, a capital offense. Falsely accused, uh, Joseph now faced life in prison. He was terrified, he was innocent, and no one cared. He was locked in a cell with actually dangerous criminals, and he barely slept or ate, and Joseph said, quote, I thought I was going to die. Worst of all, Joseph feared for his pregnant wife and his five children at home. He could not provide for them, he could not protect them, he had no money for a lawyer, and the court was not going to provide one. And so after two months, Joseph was losing hope, and his family was suffering, to put it lightly. They needed help, and they needed someone to be an advocate for them. Most IJM clients that we get the opportunity to work with are extremely impoverished. They are living in slums where there can be over 100,000 people living in one and a half square miles. In 2012, the IJM Kenya team, the same team that worked on this, did a study and they said that upwards of 40% of people who are being held in Kenyan jails in, in Nairobi are absolutely innocent. That's how common Joseph's story is. I also want you to meet Griselda and her mother, Sandra. In a terrifying moment, Sandra's, this is the mom, Sandra's world would change forever. So she had left church, she was walking home with her kids, and a car sped up beside them and grabbed the 13-year-old daughter, Griselda, sped off into the night. This is not uncommon. Sped off into the night. Sandra, as you can imagine, like any parent would, uh, freaked out. She went to the police, help, 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 and on a breakneck search, they finally found uh, a car in an abandoned old parking lot. Now, what you gotta understand is a week earlier, they had found a similar car in the exact same parking lot, and when they opened the door, they found that there had been a little girl uh, who had been killed. So, as you can imagine, when Sandra sees this and she's walking up to the car, she can't breathe. She opens up the door, um, and to her, to her delight, she finds that her daughter is alive, but she had been abused at gunpoint by three men. The assault devastated the family, and Griselda was paralyzed with fear. After the attack, she avoided all men, she avoided her dad, she avoided her brothers. She said, I felt lonely, dare I say filthy, and guilty for what had happened to me. Like any mom, Sandra desperately wanted justice for her daughter, but impoverished families like hers rarely report uh, cases of that nature of assault out of a fear of more violence from the attackers. And in Guatemala, where the story takes place, moving a case through the overworked court system requires an expensive attorney, one that Sandra could never possibly afford. But Sandra knew she had to fight. Otherwise, she said, there will be more little girls like Griselda 
uh, who will be harmed. In Guatemala, listen to this statistic, just let this seep in. 95% of children and women who report uh, sexual assault are left waiting for justice after six years. As Christians, how are we to regard such suffering? Furthermore, how does God regard such suffering? The answer is in scripture. We go back to Psalm 10, verses 12 through 18. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. This is good news. The good news is that God hates injustice. That matters. Listen to Psalm 3510. I didn't put it on the screen. I just want you to hear it. Psalm 3510. My whole being will exclaim, Who is like you, O Lord? You rescue the poor from those too strong from them, the poor and the needy from those who rob them. But then this raises another question. How? Like practically, like it's good that God cares, and it's good that this matters, but practically what is God going to do about this? What is God's plan for this rescue? It's us. Remember, we're plan A. Micah 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Isaiah 1, 17, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, and plead for the widow. You would think that if God was kind enough to give us these little tidy lists of things that we could be doing, and he puts do justice at the beginning of both lists, you would think that we would listen. Because you and I are God's plan for seeking justice. We are God's plan for making it believable for the victims of injustice that he is good. But then, if we continue to step back, this doesn't necessarily come as good news. Because I can feel the weight in the air, right? It's thick in here. We have the 45 million people in slavery. How do we comprehend that? What do we do with Joseph and Griselda and all of the other stories? How do we do something about this? And for that, thank God, the Bible gives us an answer. The feeding of the 5,000. It's in all four of the Gospels. You've probably heard it. If not, I'm going to do a telling of it that is really loose. So we're not even going to do biblical references for what I'm about to do. But it's all true. Um, so Jesus is feeding the 5,000. Or no, no, he hasn't yet. He's about to. So Jesus is out preaching. And he's out preaching in a remote location. And there are 5,000 people there. Realistically, because they didn't count women and children, there are probably like ten or 15,000 people. I would have counted women and children, but this is their prerogative. Let's just say 5,000. It's still a really impressive story. So 5,000 people out there. And Jesus is teaching and teaching. And I would assume he's a very good teacher. It's very interesting. Everything he has to say is groundbreaking. People are loving it. But, like, you know, they probably brought lunch, or maybe they had a nice big breakfast, but we're, like, rolling up to, like, 1, 2, 3 o'clock, and if you've ever had, like, a kid at Disney at that time, you can be at the most magical place on Earth, but you're, everything's falling apart. People are crying, and no amount of ice cream will make it better, and we're just got to get out of Disney. This is the worst thing, right? So they're sitting there, and the people are listening to Jesus preaching, and he's doing a great job, but his sweet, wonderful disciples are starting to sense there is a problem in the room, and so they come up to Jesus, and they say, Jesus as if he didn't know. But Jesus, the people are kind of getting tired. Um, they're just cranky. Why don't you take a pause, send them home, take a shower, I'll have some dinner, 
take a good night's sleep, they'll come back. They'll definitely come back tomorrow. Like, don't worry, you're Jesus. They're going to come back. This is a big deal for them. It's a big deal for all of us, really, right? They're going to come back tomorrow. And you would think that they thought that maybe Jesus would say yes, but of course, what does Jesus say to them? Oh, no. You feed them. Like, you know they weren't surprised by that answer, but you know it was just like, oh, my gosh. Okay, we'll feed them. So what I love that they do is they don't try to, like, they go back to their little huddle, and they try to figure out a different strategic angle. They come back to Jesus, and they're like, okay. And they're not being snarky. They're just being honest. They're saying, well, we'll try to feed them, but here's the problem. Even if we had six months' wages, right, like, that's not, that's barely enough money to feed all of these people, not to mention the fact that, you know, we're in a remote location, as you know. If we had six months' wages, it's not like there's a Costco around the corner. There's no food. There's no money. There's five, ten, fifteen thousand 15,000 people there. How exactly are we supposed to feed all of these people? Jesus, we don't actually have what it takes to do what it is you're asking me to do. Isn't this exactly the situation we find ourselves in today? 45 million, Joseph Grisella, there's this gigantic problem. The world is falling apart, right? And we see the enormity of the need, and we think, what could we possibly do here at Grace United Methodist this morning, 9.30 service, sitting in our seats to help? We're thinking, Jesus, ending slavery, doing this work is a nice idea, but honestly, honestly, we don't have anything. We can't do this. Jesus replies to their response, and he replies to us, and he asks two questions. The first question that Jesus asks is, well, what do you have? It's a hard question. It's a humbling question. But they look around, and they see a little boy with a little bag lunch. It's cute to think that the little boy had brought his lunch from home. More likely, he was probably selling it. It doesn't make it any less of a big deal. He's got a little bag lunch, a few loaves, a few fish. Maybe five people, ten people, could get through the day, the rest of the day on that amount of food. It certainly doesn't matter for five, ten, fifteen thousand people. And so... They do what Jesus asks, and they say, we've got this. And sweet, lovely Andrew says, but what is this among so many? I mean, he's asking the question, like, here's the lunch. We're answering your question. This is what we've got, but what does it matter? And then Jesus asks the second question. This is where it gets hard. This is the question that's actually really difficult because he looks at them and he says, will you give it to me? Because right now they're holding all the food. They're holding the key. They're holding the only thing that will make someone not hungry. And in their trembling hands, they give it to him. And they trust Jesus for a miracle, which is pretty much the only thing that is possible. That's what happened for Joseph. IJM learned about the charges against Joseph and began uh, to work within the Nairobi court. The trial dragged on for months despite an obvious lack of evidence. We at IJM were distraught. We did not know how we could help, and so we did the only thing we could figure out how to do at the time because we couldn't make the court move any faster. We asked churches all around the U.S. to write cards and pray, and they did. So they wrote cards, they prayed, we took these cards, we took them to Joseph's family, and uh, the court graciously allowed us to take Joseph's wife and their brand new baby, whom Joseph had never met, and these thousands of cards uh, to Joseph Sell. It was the first time he had met his baby. He hadn't seen his wife in a very, very long time. And they were able to together read the prayers and love from people all around the world. Um, as the trial continued on, the prayers clearly mattered. Um, IJM showed up at the courtroom. It was May 3rd, and uh, it was Joseph's final hearing. They walk into the courtroom, and the power is out. 
And so the judge says, you know what? Let's just delay this. We'll wait for the power to turn back on, and uh, you know, we'll do this another day. One of the IJM lawyers, who was really feisty, said nope, and ran out of the courtroom, went and bought candles, brought it back in, and by candlelight, they declared that Joseph was indeed innocent. Likewise, for Griselda and her mother, Sandra. Sandra heard about IJM Guatemala. I think she saw a flyer somewhere um, and knew that IJM would provide lawyers and provide legal help. Um, and they would help with social workers to help with Griselda, to help her recover from the, the emotional and physical trauma of what had happened. Sandra said that IJM stood with us through every single moment and we were never alone. Strengthened by IJM's uh, kind of help, um, they took the unbelievable step of testifying in court in front of the attackers, both of them. Um, IJM uh, and the IJM lawyers and the team and a whole team of people advocated for them for five years. And finally, all three of the men who had, uh, who had assaulted Griselda were found guilty and are still in jail. As a kind of postscript to this, and the picture's up uh, next, Griselda asked, she said, uh, and Griselda's there in the middle, she said, I would like to come to America and speak to everybody at IJM and tell them my story. And we're like, you don't have to do that. Like, you've been through enough traveling, it's like a big deal. You just stay home, or you do a video message, or you can just write a card, and she said, I wanna be there. So she came to our global prayer gathering. What you don't see is she's speaking to about 2,000 people. And she stood up there, and she told her story, <laughs> and everybody cried. Um, and she was a testimony to what God does when you offer up your little bit of obedience. Um, why do you think Jesus fed the 5,000 the way he did? Because if you really think about it, there was, like, there was a theological precedence that Jesus could have just been like, poof, manna. He didn't have to do it this way. Well, he did it for a lot of reasons. But I think one of the great reasons is he did it so that this little boy would have an incredible story. I think he ran home to his mom that night and was like, remember when I left with that bag of food this morning, you know, and you like let a, left a little note in it that said like, I love you, have a great day listening to Jesus and all that kind of stuff, right? You remember that? Guess what happened with that little lunch that you sent me? Conversely, what an ordinary day it would have been had that little boy just done what I, I mean, I would have done. And it's no shame, right? But what, what would have happened? He would have just sat beside a rock and eaten his lunch while the adults figured it out. The truth of the matter is, is it takes an incredible amount of bravery and courage to take a single step, to do something small. And this is my hope for us today, that we would offer up what we've been given to a needy world. Whether the world is suffering because they haven't heard the gospel um, or they don't have the bare essentials, or they are being restrained at the hands of an oppressor. My hope is that we would offer up what little we've got in obedience and trust God for the miracles. There are two practical steps that I would like to offer you right now. There are about a million practical steps in your life, but I wanna offer you two now, because I feel like sometimes I'm at the end of these kinds of sermons and I'm like, what do I do today? I'm like, what do I do? There's two things. One, um, when Rick and Levi stand up here and say, hey, we're doing a thing. Or we hear the announcements and it's, hey, we're collecting backpacks. Don't let go of that. Don't brush that off. Don't think that that's someone else's work. That little backpack, the little moment that you go to Target and you fill that with school supplies and give that to a kid, you have no idea, maybe some of you do, but you have no idea what it's like to go to school and have nothing. Imagine what it says to that child's heart 
that someone cared enough to fill a backpack, right? All we have to do is just a little thing. We go to a Target, and we trust that Jesus does miracles with a backpack full of stuff, right? So that's the first thing. When you hear things in this church, do it. This is a church that is about outfitting disciples. This is a church that is about getting outside of these walls. I and many of my friends are a testimony to what this church is able to do because a few people got together on Sundays and figured out what it meant to offer up what we've got in obedience. That's the first thing. Be a part of this church and don't let anything pass you by. Just do it all, right? Even if you don't know why it matters, just do it. And the second thing as it it pertains to IJM, um, I would ask you to do whatever you can to help us end slavery. Quit your job, come and work for us. Come and be an intern. If you got a ton of money, give it all. (laughs) I I don't care. Do whatever you have to do to help us in this work. Because while 45 million is a number that is crushing to hear, we are a part of a generation that is going to see an end to slavery in our lifetime. This will change. I will not have a sermon to give in 30, 40 years because there will be no more slaves. The wave is cresting. You can become a freedom partner. I gave you little things that are in your bulletin. Um, You can give $24 a month. I know that seems like a weird number, but it is a number that we have calculated that if people are able to do that, we can be about the work of hiring lawyers for Griselda and Sandra. It matters. I know it's not a big deal. I know it won't even, you won't even notice it, but it matters a great deal, and it's something. It's something that we can do today to leverage our lives for the sake of other people. And in this world of such great need, God is determined to rescue us from living trivial lives, lives that are bound by fear. And he is bound and determined to bring us into the joy that flows from participating in his work. Become a freedom partner. Offer up the little lunch bag that you have and then do it again and do it again and do it again because it will change Gainesville and it will change our planet.